0: Great. Good morning. Good to see you all. This is great. Um, right, so as Quincy said, we're continuing our series on our core values. Core values from uh, New Frontiers. Oh, I can feel my voice. after all that singing. <laughs> it's been great, hasn't it? Really good. And so core values from New Frontiers, core values from New Ground, core values for us as a church. And Dale spoke about word-based a couple of weeks ago. Tim talked about Gracefield. Last week we're going to be looking at Spirit Empowered this morning and as Dale said a couple of weeks ago talking about the Word, he said, I'm I'm sort of going to assume that you believe that the the Bible is the Word of God and I'm going to make an assumption this morning that you're happy that we are filled, we're baptised in the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to give that as teaching and ask you to come forward at the end to be baptised in the Spirit. I'm going to make that assumption and work from there so you may think thinking about spirit inspired that uh, or empowered that we dive into the new testament but we're not we're going to start in the old testament so if you've got your bibles please turn to genesis the first book of the bible and let me give you a little idea of where i'm heading i've got three points first point is life the second point is godliness and the third point is life now you might think oh, he hasn't got much to say, so he's going to repeat his first point as the third point. But actually, uh, the first point is life, natural life, and the third point is life, sp- supernatural life. So hopefully you found Genesis 1, and I'm going to start reading from verse 27 and then drop over into chapter 2. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then flip over into chapter 2 verse 4. And if you remember, chapter 1 is a sort of overall summary of creation and then chapter 2 it sort of digs into a bit more detail and verse 4 says this this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the lord god made earth and heaven now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the lord god had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living person. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. God breathed life into Adam and he became a living person. Person. Another translation says a living soul, life and spirit, natural life, supernatural life. It was all in one in Adam. It was one and the same. He had physical life and he had eternal life. He had a perfect relationship with God. We, we read about God walking with him in the cool of the evening. And he was given a long-term goal with Eve to fill the earth and look after it. And then God gave them an an immediate and more manageable task by creating for them a garden for them to start on. We don't know whether God told them, this is the long-term goal. You're going to look after the whole earth. What he did was he said, look, here's a little garden for you to start on. Get on with this. Cultivate this. And then sin intervened and broke up that perfect relationship. Adam remained Physically alive, but he was spiritually dead. His relationship with God was broken, and they were banished from the garden. And the work that he'd been given to do became harder and harder, but he was still alive. And later in Genesis, in chapter 6, we read that God put a limit on the length of man's life, but notice. How he expressed it. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man forever. Because he is also flesh, nevertheless, his days 120 years. Not worry about the length, but he says, My spirit will not remain with man forever. God will withdraw his spirit, his breath from us. Quite literally, he will take our breath away. You may think that breath came when the midwife went, slapped your bottom, or whether they do that. They always do it in the films, don't they? I don't know whether they actually do it. But God breathed into you. In that moment, God breathed life into you. Your every breath is empowered by the Spirit. You're all breathing in and out. Everyone empowered by the spirit so why is this important apart from the fact that we continue living well the psalmist tells us that God numbers our days in Psalm 139 he says your eyes have seen my formless substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them even God knew from the beginning How many he numbers our days? And this is not some distracted observation that has no practical use. Like the group of scientists in Switzerland I read recently who announced that they had calculated pi to 62.8 trillion decimal places. Wow. Interesting, an Australian professor said, I can't imagine any real-life physical application where you would need more than 15 decimal places. Not 15 million, not 15, but just 15. In fact, a group of mathematicians have estimated that an approximation of pi to 39 digits is accurate enough to calculate the circumference of the observable universe to a diameter of a single hydrogen atom, 39 digits. 62.8 trillion, is not really much use. God is much more intimately involved in the number of our days because he has plans for us. In Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. That word prosperity, sometimes uh, translated welfare, is actually the word shalom, which we generally translate as peace. But in Hebrew culture, it has so much more meaning. It's peace with God, it's peace within, and it's peace with others, and not just now or next week, but forever, for eternity. It has the sense of restoring the relationship that Adam had with God before the fall. And if you're not a Christian, this is particularly good news. As Jeremiah spoke these words to the people of Israel at a time when they were in exile. They had rejected God. They disobeyed him. They didn't believe in him. And he'd allowed them to be overthrown and transported as slaves into Babylon, and yet he still had plans for them. Plans that were good, plans that were positive, giving a hope for a better future. God says the same to you. We shouldn't be surprised then that in the New Testament, Paul says something very similar to believers, those who are Christians. And Tim referenced it last week. In Ephesians, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has a purpose for your life, a unique schedule of plans exclusive to you. And he gives you breath every day, empowered by the Spirit to enable you to see those plans fulfilled. And just like Adam, who had a long-term goal, fill the earth and look after it, cultivate it. He has long-term goals for us. He may not have told you about them, or he may have done, but he has them. He also gives us short-term activities, like, Adam, look after this garden. Show a care for a friend. Volunteer to be a meeting maker. Offer to run a life group. Ask if someone would like to pray with you regularly. Acknowledge that you're a Christian, maybe at work or at school or on your doorstep with a Tesco delivery man. Chat with Paul and Claudine about IJM as they move to Liverpool and we look for someone else to take on that responsibility. But unlike Adam, God has a further purpose for us. That is godliness. The simple definition of godliness is probably to be like Jesus. And that's certainly God's purpose for us, that we should be like Jesus, act like Jesus, think like Jesus, respond like Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in making us more like Jesus is called sanctification, which means to be set apart or to be holy. But I don't know about you, the problem I have with some of these Christian words is I'm told what they mean, but I don't have a clear understanding later to remember it, sort of how it works out in day-to-day life. To the purist, sanctification and godliness are not exactly the same. But for me, they're close enough. And somehow, godliness is one of those does what it says on the tin type of words godliness you think what does godliness mean well it means to be like god yeah that's it you've got it here's a great definition of godliness the quality or practice of conforming to the laws and wishes of god and reflecting the nature of the kingdom of god in everyday life that's a mantra to live by isn't it Godliness is a process. It's different to salvation. By grace, you have been saved. It's a done deal. No longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive in Christ. And now God is able to work on us, to make us, develop us to be more like him. And he does that by putting us in the garden that he's prepared for us. And he gets us to carry out his plans and purposes. And it's not just carrying out tasks. He shapes our character at the same time. So we may find that we're working alongside other people. And even directly with other people. People who don't do the things the way I do. Who have different ideas different motivation, different perspectives, certainly different concepts of what success looks like, or even when something is finished, when I don't really think it's finished. Why is it always my character that has to change? Why can't God work on their character? Maybe they're thinking the same thing about me. The challenge is that the process of godliness is not linear. It's not task given, task achieved, progress made, move on. Like climbing a ladder. I'm on the third rung of godliness, and I'm working towards my fourth rung of godliness. It has much more of an ebb and flow to it. We find that things we thought we'd learnt and understood and and overcome come back to challenge us afresh, maybe at a deeper level than previously. The disciples learnt this the hard way. In Mark, we read that Jesus sent the disciples out, the 12, two by two. And it says in Mark 6, they went out and preached that people are to repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. But later, a man came to Jesus and brought his son who had a demon and said to him, your disciples couldn't cast it out. And of course, Jesus did. And afterwards, the disciples said to him, why why couldn't we do that? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything except prayer. It's the anything except prayer that struck me so not my effort not my previous experience not my best intentions not even my desire to please god but prayer which takes me straight back to god you see when jesus sent out the sent out the uh, the disciples in mark 6 he gave them his authority Go as my ambassadors and do this, effectively, he said. Or to use today's subject, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit because they went in Jesus' name. Whatever we do serving in the church, sharing our faith, praying for others, helping those in need, learning at school, working to earn money, watching TV, playing sports in fact, everything we do. Is a means by which God develops our godliness. And we can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've talked about doing. Let me also cover not doing or making choices. Every generation of the church is challenged by the culture of the world around them. And that's no different today. We have choices to make. That are incredibly difficult particularly given the pressures around us and especially when the current culture encourage us be yourself make your own choices be who you want to be do your own thing don't let anyone tell you how you should live these play to our inner desires which often run counter to what god would want for us Same-sex relationships, gender choices, treating sex as a leisure pastime like hanging out with friends or going to the cinema. These are our cultural norms. Even this week in the paper I read that Will Smith, uh, the actor, and his wife Jada have what they call an open marriage where either can enjoy other sexual partners and then return to the family home as if nothing has happened. He said, we have given each other trust and freedom with the belief that everybody has to find their own way. And marriage for us can't be a prison. And I don't suggest our road for anybody. I don't suggest this road for anybody. But the experiences, that freedoms that we've given one another and the unconditional support to me is the highest definition of love. Oh, my word. And while he's not recommending it, for some reason, those who are wealthy and famous become role models for society. Now, not all our choices are sex-related, although many are. We can choose to make other things that we want or enjoy more important than God and godliness. When we bend the truth about our qualifications for a job interview, I'm not suggesting that Christian would have done anything like that. Mind you, he couldn't remember his wife's name, so that was a bit worrying, wasn't it? Or we don't disclose those, all those faults about the item we're selling on eBay. When we do those things, we acknowledge that God can't look after us and we have to rely on our own abilities. So what do we do? Well, back in the first century... The Christians the Christians the Corinthians well they were Christians. The Corinthians had the same issues. And Paul wrote to them, initially reminding them that they were not unique. He spoke about the Israelites in Moses' time having the same challenges. And God used them as an example to the Corinthians. And guess what? God uses the Corinthians as an example. For us, Paul says, talking about the, uh, the the Israelites, he says they were idolaters. That means you put something in front of God. You put something more important than God. They were sexually immoral. They put God to the test, and they grumbled. Interesting, isn't it, that grumbling is put alongside sexually immoral and idolatry? <laughs> That's the list. This is what Paul said to them. No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. It was common to the Israelites. It's common to the Corinthians. It's common to us. You haven't encountered anything as a challenge that anyone else hasn't faced. And God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. But what is that way of escape? It can't just be a choice, like arriving at a fork in the road with signs showing the right way, the wrong way. We've all been there and deliberately chosen the wrong way. Paul faced the same problem. He was not unique either. He says, for the good that I want, the right way, I do not do. But I practice the very evil the wrong way that I don't want to do. And you can follow his journey through Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8. uh, And we read about the wonderful truths of forgiveness and no condemnation. And he arrives at the solution in verse 12 in Romans 8. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living in accordance with the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. So our choice is not the right way or the wrong way. It's will I call on the power of the Holy Spirit whom God has placed in me immediately available to me? Not a Sunday away, not a prayer meeting away, not even a prayer away, but as instantly available as a thought. There's our way of escape, the indwelling empowering of the Holy Spirit. We're going to move on to life supernatural. When we become a Christian, we are born again. This is a phrase that Jesus used for the first time when talking to a Pharisee called Nicodemus. It's a passage we know well from John 3 as it's fundamental to our understanding of what happens to us when we believe in Jesus. In Adam, we were spiritually dead. And Jesus explains that we're now alive in Christ. We're born again. We're born of the Spirit. We're born from above, this amazing work of God in our lives. What we often miss is what Nicodemus said to cause Jesus to give this explanation he said rabbi we know that you have come from God as a teacher For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him Jesus responded and said to him truly I say to you unless someone is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God that was the association how do you do these things I'm You need to be born again. You need to see the kingdom of God. He could have said, yes, I'm from God. But he uses this opportunity to introduce Nicodemus to the kingdom of God. And by linking it with being born again or born of the spirit, he's identifying it as of a different order, a whole new world. One that cannot be touched and seen like trees and flowers or bricks and mortar, we might say. The kingdom is key to Jesus' coming, and we are part of it. Let me give you four quick verses just through the Gospels. At the start of Jesus' ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's just about to begin his ministry, and he's saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's just here. And then it represents Jesus' mission. When he had been healing the sick and casting out demons, the people were clamoring, stay with us, come and do some more. And he said, no, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities. That was his mission. And he demonstrated the kingdom, that the kingdom had come through casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. And we are part of it. When Jesus sent out the 72, you know I mentioned earlier he sent out the disciples two by two, he then later sent out the 72. And his instruction was, heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Remember that definition or part of that definition of godliness, reflecting the nature of the kingdom of God in everyday life. As charismatic Christians, If we're empowered by the Spirit, it must be to take ground for the kingdom of God, wherever we go and whatever we do. Yes, we can cut our teeth here in the secure environment of the church on a Sunday or a life group or a prayer meeting. And that's what we should do. Paul says that. He says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. And we could add a prayer, a prophecy, a word of encouragement, a word of knowledge. And that's what we should be doing. And that's what we were experiencing this morning. But we can also be nervous. Will it, will it fit in? Am I way off beam? Have I missed the moment? I should have said it earlier. I should have just jumped in earlier. But when we do find the courage, often we have other, others who have a contribution that sort of dovetails together, as Dale shared. And then Jane, oh, yeah, this seems to fit together. And we hear God speaking to us. Or someone responds to a word of knowledge and, and God heals them. Why does God do that? To make us feel warm and fuzzy inside? No. To give us confidence that we have heard from him, That he is at work in our lives and the lives of others and wants to bless them, using us who are empowered by the Spirit. Standing on the doorstep, such an encouraging testimony, Carrie. Standing on the doorstep, sensing, is God at work in this man's life? And that, yeah, here we go. And it gives us confidence and courage. And then... We're in the queue at Morrisons, or at work, or at school, or with family, friends, neighbours, and we feel that same nudge. Offer to help that person. Pay for the ladies shopping. Buy some flowers and give them away. Ask if you might pray for healing. Offer the homeless man a coffee and see if he wants some lunch. We have courage to respond Because although it's a different situation, the same spirit empowers us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help me to realize every breath I breathe is from you. Not just to exist or survive, but to have purpose in your kingdom. You have plans for me that may take me round the world or just round the corner. Exciting and yet may be difficult challenges that stretch me again and again, but cause me to draw on the power of your Spirit and help me to make good choices. You have given me gifts to bless and encourage the church and courage to step boldly into a world that desperately needs to see the kingdom of God impact their lives. And I can't do any of this without the empowering of your Holy Spirit. Help me to be more conscious of the power that is available to me and to draw on that resource again and again until, until it becomes habit as natural as breathing Amen